Well, uh, before we turn to our passage this afternoon, uh, I do want to take a moment to express on behalf of our church our appreciation to the many of you who are working uh, in the healthcare uh, sector, responding in various ways to this continuing crisis uh, that we're living through together. I think of Carolyn Kane and Leslie Rob Nicholson, uh, Carolyn a nurse and Leslie a doctor at Mass General, uh, Melanie Matthews, a local family physician, practitioner, Re uh, Rebecca Saff, she's an immunologist, Jonathan Chang, an uh, internist, Ben Worf, a pediatric surgeon at Children's, or Ellen Ronsley, uh, she's a pharmacist at the Melrose Wakefield Hospital. Kristen Sabella, she's serving as an EMT. And you know, we just appreciate you and, and all the names that, are, are, uh, that, that these uh, folks represent um, outside of the ones I've actually mentioned. We are praying for you. And uh, in fact, our staff this week uh, gathered together uh, names of folks that we know of serving in healthcare in the medical industry. We came up with 42 names that we're definitely uh, serving in this context. We're a part of our church, and uh, we know it's not a complete list. And so we sure would appreciate it if you would send us an email. Send it actually to Bill Pearson, who was just up here a moment ago. Bill serves as our director of health science. Uh, ministries and his email is bpearson at parkstreet.org. You can see it on uh, the website if you go to that under staff. And let them know your name, where you work, and what can we be praying for you uh, about in your life at this point. Uh, we, we would greatly appreciate that. bpearson at parkstreet.org if you are a health care professional. We are looking today at the letter written by Paul to this man named Philemon, and it's, uh, it's just a little letter. It may be a letter that many of us are unfamiliar with. Uh, in a first glance, it actually seems like an odd piece of scripture for, from which to preach the Sunday after Easter. Actually, Philemon is the only letter Paul writes where he doesn't mention either the death of Christ, the cross, or the resurrection. So I suspect that this is the first time in Park Street's history, maybe in all Christendom, that Philemon has been preached upon the Sunday after Easter. But in God's providential timing, as we are wrapping up our series in the Gospel of Mark as we look forward to a new series uh, about a letter that Peter wrote, 1 Peter. Uh, our new senior minister, Mark Booker, will begin that next Sunday. And as we continue to consider this in this season of Eastertide, uh, our reflection on the realities and implication of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is simply no better text to preach from than this wonderful personal letter. So I hope to tie all of these strands together uh, by the end of the message, 
So let's take a moment and pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. What a gift it is to us. The revelation of things that we would not know if it was not by your hand showing and revealing truth and hope and peace and joy to us. So, Lord, we ask as we consider this short letter written by Paul to Philemon, that you would speak to us, increase our faith, our trust in you, and help us to rejoice over this profound truth that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is alive, has been resurrected, and he transforms lives even now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark, and uh, Mark closes out his Gospel in chapter 16 with a group of women trembling in fear, standing at the empty tomb, listening to an angel proclaim uh, a message to them that Christ has risen from the dead. And they just, they have no idea what's going on. They can't grasp what is unfolding before their eyes. So after um, this episode, Mark adds, there's a, an epilogue that's added on from uh, Mark 16 verses 9 to 20 that kind of sum up what transpires after this scene. But when we want to drive home the, the authenticity, the reality of the resurrection, it's typically to Matthew or Luke or John that we turn. Because each of those, they offer extensive convincing proof of Jesus' resurrection through stories which unfolded following the discovery of the empty tomb. Luke, he goes to great lengths to explain the women's interaction and response to the angels at the tomb as they share with them that, yes, indeed, Jesus has been risen from the dead. And then the women go and share this message, conveying it to the disciples. He follows that up with another story, a conversation Jesus has with two disciples as they're walking along the road to uh, a small town called Emmaus. Then Luke continues on talking about how Jesus ate with his disciples, trying to convince them that indeed he's not a ghost, that he has flesh, that he's alive, just like they are, even though, they, uh, even though he was once dead. Now, indeed, he's alive. Well, Matthew, what does he do? He, he actually adds the backstory of the guards' reaction to Christ's resurrection. Uh, the, the ones who are guarding the tomb. But then, you know, all this happens, and, and, and Matthew kind of follows along with how they respond to, to this empty tomb. Uh, the, the Jewish authorities along with them, they, they had to try to figure out how to respond to what had transpired. So it wasn't just the followers of Jesus who acknowledged his resurrection. It was those even who opposed him, even crucified him, who were dumbfounded by an empty tomb. Then we often turn to the Gospel of John, where 
he talks about how Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene at, at the tomb. Or then he goes on to tell of a story where Jesus appears to the disciples. Uh, they're in a locked room in fear of the Jewish leaders. Uh, that's then followed by an appearance to Thomas by Christ. Uh, this man who was skeptical about everything he had heard in, in Christ Jesus shows up, invites him to touch his hands and touch his sides to prove the reality of his resurrection. Then in the next chapter, Christ appears to Peter in a dramatic scene of restoration after Peter's denial uh, and abandonment of Christ. And so from the perspective of a courtroom, if the testimony of these varied and numerous witnesses is accepted as reliable, there's just no other logical verdict that you, you can reach other than Jesus rose from the dead. And why wouldn't you believe their testimony? Why wouldn't you be willing to accept it? Luke begins his gospel by saying, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning and decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. He wanted to, you to be sure that you knew these things actually happened. Near the end of John's gospel, right after he shares the story of Thomas touching Jesus' nail-scarred, resurrected hands and, and side, John uh, writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Look, there's lots more I could even tell you that he did, John says. But these were recorded in this book so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I mean, you see what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do. They, they serve as fact-based advocates of the resurrection because they either witnessed it themselves or they presented carefully researched evidence which demanded a verdict of resurrected, living Lord, living Messiah, living Savior. But beyond this overwhelming weight of forensic evidence from the Gospels, there's another convincing argument concerning the resurrection. It's this little letter to Philemon written by Paul 30 years or so after Jesus died on the cross. Even though the resurrection is not mentioned in it, all the proof necessary to be convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead is contained within these 25 verses manifested through the most fascinating life intersection of those mentioned in this letter. And it's all centered in a little house apartment 
somewhere in Rome around 61 AD. The letter starts out, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And in fact, that's exactly what Paul was. He, he was a prisoner, uh, probably in Rome. Some will say it may have been in Ephesus, but there's no actual record in the New Testament that Paul was in a prison or imprisoned in Ephesus. So most likely it was Rome. And apparently he was, in this case, under house arrest, uh, living in some kind of apartment or home uh, in the city. He may have been chained to a Roman guard or a number of guards who rotated through this responsibility. But it's absolutely astonishing that this man would be in that little apartment in the first place, suffering in chains because of his testimony about Jesus. I mean, think about it. Who was Paul before? Here's how Paul described who he used to be as he stood trial before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. He says, I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I raised my hand. I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I was so obsessed with persecuting them, Paul writes, that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. But now where do we find Paul? We find Paul in a foreign city of Rome, not because he was hunting Christians to persecute them, but because he was arrested for advocating for faith in the risen Christ. Goes on to explain why to Agrippa. He says, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Then I asked, well, who are you? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. And from that point on, Paul trusted Christ. He began to live for Christ. He proclaimed Christ. He was imprisoned for Christ. And he would eventually die for Christ. And what transformed his life? He met the resurrected Jesus. 
And so there Paul lived under house arrest in Rome, continuing his ministry to reach the world for Christ. He, he wrote some letters to strengthen the churches during this time. But he wasn't alone in his home here in Rome. There were a number of other friends uh, with him who interacted with him in this home. Paul actually had to pay uh, for his own uh, cost of living in this place to feed himself. And, and so there was some allowance to allow other people to come and visit, uh, help him, uh, to feed him. Uh, so this group, they spoke with him, they cared for him. He would probably give them encouragement about life and ministry, what they should be doing. And we find out in verse 2 that Timothy was among them. Uh, verse 23, we find a few more names. There was Demas, uh, Aristarchus, Epiphas, there was Luke. And there was actually one other there with them that we will consider in a moment. But one day, someone else walks into this little apartment. His name is Onesimus. We don't know why he did. We don't know how he came into Paul's company. But from the letter Paul writes to, to Philemon, we know what his background was. For many years, he was a slave owned by Philemon, uh, who lived in the town of uh, Colossae, which today would be like modern-day Turkey. And for some reason, at some point, Onesimus decided to run away from his responsibilities, uh, run away from Philemon, leave Colossae, and travel a thousand miles it's how far it was from a Colossae to Rome. And that's a long way to travel, to get away from your previous life. And so it was safe to say that uh, there's no reason to believe he would have ever returned to Colossae, uh, to Philemon's household from this point on as he arrived in that city. He ran away probably to start a new life to disappear into the background of this massive city of Rome. As it turns out, Paul knew Philemon quite well. In fact, it's apparent that Philemon became a Christian through Paul's ministry, probably in Ephesus, because Paul says to him in verse 19, you owe me your very self. That's just a, a kind of fun way to say, look, you came to Christ through my ministry. You owe me. You know, we, the life you have now, the fullness of it is, is partially due to our friendship, our uh, Lord working through that. So after accepting Christ, Philemon, he begins to lead uh, a house church in uh, Colossae. And Paul and Philemon... They were good friends, uh, so much so that Paul hoped that once he got out of this house arrest that, well, he would end up visiting uh, with 
the church in Colossae, uh, staying actually in Philemon's home. He tells him, prepare a guest room for me in verse 22. I know your prayers are going to be, you're praying for me. God's going to answer those prayers. I'm going to come get a room for, ready for me, Philemon. So as I said, there really is no indication how or why Onesimus ended up in Paul's home in Rome. My guess is that things probably just weren't turning out very well for Philemon as he tried to make a new life of it for himself in this big city as a runaway slave. Onesimus, well, he probably did know Paul. I mean, if Philemon and Paul were such good friends, it's hard to imagine that Onesimus didn't know who Paul was already. Uh, and my hunch is, is that as things weren't going well for Onesimus, he caught wind that this good man, Paul, was in Rome, and so he probably tracked him down to talk to him, maybe looking for counsel, looking for some kind of help, uh, or, or, you know, just somebody to talk to about what to do at this point. Well, whatever happened, whatever the reasons behind this, Onesimus ended up in Paul's company. They became really good friends. Good friendship quickly developed between them. And you can imagine at some point, Paul must have said to Onesimus, look, brother, you've got to go back to Colossae. You've got to set things right with Philemon because you wronged him. Look, I'll write a letter of support for you to Philemon, but you just got to go back. And you know what Onesimus does? He goes back to Philemon. That's just crazy. That's astonishing. He was a thousand miles away from Colossae. He had broken free from his life as a slave. On top of that, the penalty for running away, for, for a fugitive, a runaway slave, it was harsh. Philemon had Roman law on his side. He could severely punish Onesimus for his actions, even putting him to death, and no one would have cared. Onesimus, he could have just walked away from Paul, walked away from this house, this apartment, melted into the city of Rome, and never have been heard from again. But that's not what happens, is it? Instead, he agrees with Paul. He goes back with the threats of severe punishment hanging over him. He goes back to face Philemon with the desire to reconcile. Rather than to live this runaway fugitive life that he was living in Rome, why would Onesimus do such a thing? Well, Paul explains why. He writes to Philemon in verse 15, Perhaps the reason Onesimus was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. 
He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. As Paul's friendship with Onesimus grew, Onesimus met Christ. He trusted Christ. He believed Paul's testimony about the risen Christ and Onesimus's attitude about life changed. He was a changed man who turned into a dear brother in Christ, serving alongside Paul. And so he knew he had to do the right thing. He had to go back to Philemon and he needed to set things right with him. And that is just astonishing. Let's consider Philemon for a moment. Listen to how Paul describes this man. In verse 1, he calls him a dear friend and a fellow worker. Verse 7, he says, Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brothers, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. That's actually always been my life verse. If it could just be said of me or or said of any of you, at the end of your life, if it could be put on your epitaph, you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. What was it that made Philemon a man who brought such encouragement to so many people, so much so that Paul could ask him to extend extraordinary grace towards this man, Onesimus. Paul tells us in verse 5, he says, I hear of your love for all the holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Philemon trusted the risen Christ with his life and he was transformed. He believed Paul's testimony that Jesus was risen from the dead. And because of that, his life became a wellspring of blessing to others. We don't have a record of how Philemon responded to Paul's appeal to receive Onesimus back. But the fact that this letter itself is included in the New Testament scriptures would lead you to believe that Philemon did as Paul asked. If we are to believe Paul's description of Philemon, his godly character, I don't think there's any doubt of the tender reception that Onesimus must have received as he stood there at the doorstep of Philemon's home, knocking upon that door. And if church history has it correctly, uh, it attests to the fact that Onesimus continued in ministry after leaving Paul. And I'll share you a little bit about that in a moment. Uh, but this ministry, it would have been enabled in some measure by Philemon's embrace of Paul's counsel and Onesimus himself. Well, let's return to Paul's counsel, to Paul's appeal to Philemon. Well, what 
ground, could Paul ask Onesimus to return to Philemon and in turn appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus back? Paul tells us in verse 9, I appeal to you on the basis of love. That's That's what the appeal is based upon, love. And he calls Philemon his brother in verse 7. He tells Philemon that Onesimus is now Philemon's brother in verse 16. Where has all this deep brotherly affection between Philemon and Paul and Onesimus come from? Why does Paul so readily employ family language to describe their relationship with one another. Well, maybe John tells us in chapter one of his gospel where this all comes from. He says that those who believe on his name are given the right to be called children of God, children not born of natural descent, but born of God. This family love, this family affection, which Paul depends upon to bring about family reconciliation. It comes from the fact that Paul and Philemon and now Onesimus all believed on the name of the living Christ. They were born again. They were given the right to be called children of God. Behind everything that happens in this letter, is a risen Christ who transforms people, transforms relationships, who reconciles and restores. And Paul tells Philemon, don't you view Onesimus from the Roman perspective as a runaway slave deserving of punishment? View him from Christ's perspective where there is no longer slave or free, but we are brothers, we are one family in Christ. Rejoice that your brother has returned home to you. But there's there's yet another backstory behind this company gathered in Paul's apartment in Rome. Paul's counsel to Philemon actually may have even grown out of the experienced, uh, the experience that he had of a breached and restored relationship with someone else who is running in the same circle, in the same company of people in Rome. Earlier I had mentioned a few names who were among those who were keeping Paul company in Rome, but I left one name out. See if you pick it up. Paul writes in verse 23, Epiphas, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. It's Mark, the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark that we have been studying since January. And I've used this word a few times already, but that is absolutely astonishing that Mark is with Paul 
in Rome, ministering with him, ministering to him. Because if you know the story that happens in Acts 15 between Paul and Barnabas and Mark, you would realize, well, again, this is astonishing. You know, Paul met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He trusted Christ and began to testify uh, about his death and resurrection. And then a man named Barnabas, who actually happened to be the cousin of Mark. Barnabas, he befriends Paul. He advocates for Paul among the, the Jewish uh, believers in Jerusalem, those who have come to faith in Christ, because, well, you know what Paul used to be doing. <laughs> and, and so Barnabas came to, to support him and say, no, this man has changed his life. And then Barnabas takes Paul to the city of Antioch to disciple the believers together. So Barnabas and, and Paul have this growing friendship. They return from Antioch, and then they decide that they're going to go on a longer journey together, a longer missionary trip. And they decide to take Mark with them. Uh, it's in Acts 13, if you want to look it up at some point. And it ends up being a really difficult journey. Paul gets sick. Uh, they face opposition, persecution, and finally Mark just bugs out. Uh, he, he leaves Paul and Barnabas behind, and he just goes back to his home in Jerusalem. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they eventually return to Jerusalem. They make a report on their work, and then they have a conversation. They say, well, let, let's go back and visit these churches uh, whom we've ministered among, to see how they're doing, to strengthen them. Let's go on another missionary journey together. And that then leads to Acts 15. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they get into a heated debate because Barnabas wants to invite Mark to go back with them. And Paul refuses to allow this. No way! This man abandoned us on the last mission trip. And, and this argument, heated argument, it puts a wedge between Barnabas and Paul. Their friendship uh, begins to dissolve. Barnabas takes Mark and goes to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas and goes to Syria, other places, and ministers. So not only did Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas on this previous mission trip. Now Mark ends up being the source of this, uh, of a fractured friendship, a fractured, amazing partnership between Paul and Barnabas. I mean, think about how Mark must have been feeling. He must have felt terrible about all this. He must have felt awful about himself. And from that point on, from Acts 15, we don't hear anything about Mark for about 10 years. And when we finally do, it is in the most surprising location. Mark is with Paul, keeping him company, ministering to him, serving beside him in this little apartment 
in Rome while Paul is under house arrest while he's writing this letter to Philemon. I mean, you can just imagine the hurt Paul must have felt when Mark abandoned them on that missionary journey and, and then when he came between him and Paul, when Paul, I mean, between him and Barnabas, when Paul left with Silas, he must have left Jerusalem ticked off, had lost total confidence in Mark. And yet here Paul and Mark were now together in Rome. I mean, how could this be? What, what had changed? Uh, pastor, preacher John MacArthur, who has written a great little chapter about this episode in a book called 12 Unlikely Heroes of the Bible. He suspects Mark's life was transformed by a friendship with Peter. We find out in Acts 12, Peter was a good friend of Mark's family. You can, you can read the episode that happens uh, in, in Acts 12. And like Paul, Peter ended up in prison in Rome as well, probably between Paul's first imprisonment and, and his second imprisonment in that city. And during that time when Peter was in prison, Peter writes two letters in that context to the churches as he's incarcerated, uh, as he, his death is imminent. Uh, he writes First Peter, which we, again, will begin to study next week, and he, he, he begins, and he writes Second Peter. Well, in the first letter, guess who, Paul, guess who Peter refers to? He says in 1 Peter 5, Mark, my son, greets you. So just as Mark was caring for Paul during his first imprisonment in, in uh, Rome, now here Mark is caring for Peter in the same kind of context. And MacArthur believes that when Mark returned to Jerusalem after abandoning Paul and Barnabas, Peter took Mark under his wings. He discipled him. He built him up. He restored him as a leader. And who else better to minister to Mark in this manner than Peter, whom he himself had abandoned Jesus and then was restored to a leadership role by the resurrected Christ. And so at some point between Acts 15 and the 23rd verse of Philemon, perhaps it wasn't until Paul was under house arrest in Rome. Mark shows up at Paul's door. Maybe it was encouraged by Peter himself. We don't know. And he knocks. May I come in, Paul? Paul invites Mark in. I mean, we don't have an actual record of this conversation, but you can imagine the conversation must have gone something like this. Paul, I am so sorry for abandoning you in Pamphylia. I was scared. My faith in Christ was weak. 
and I just ran. And then you come back, Paul, and, and I end up putting a wedge between you and Barnabas. I am just so sorry for what had happened. Will you forgive me? And of course, Paul responded with something like, it is good to have you back with me, and it will be good to have you serving with me again. What was behind this reconciled, restored relationship? It was the resurrected Christ, the one who met Peter, who forgave him, and restored him to ministry. It was the resurrected Christ who met Paul on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute the church. The resurrected Christ who forgave Paul for his murderous activities, gave him a new calling, a new life, and surely it was the work of the resurrected Christ which brought about the reconciliation between Paul and Mark. What an astonishing little apartment this was in Rome, for few places testified to the resurrected Christ more than this tiny flat. For it was in it a murderous religious leader whom the resurrected Christ transformed into an amazing man of faith who would speak life and hope to the lives of thousands across the Roman world. In this little house, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians. Paul wrote to the Colossians. And he wrote this personal letter to Philemon. And in this little house was a runaway slave, lost and uncertain where to go. But through Paul, the resurrected Christ transformed his life. He would return to Colossae, to to seek reconciliation with Philemon. And again, if church history has it correctly, uh, it, it indicates that he became the bishop in Ephesus. Onesimus may have even played a part in collecting the letters of Paul together to edify the church in his posterity for future generations. And of course, there in this home was Mark, the failed, disillusioned missionary who abandoned Paul and Barnabas during a great time of trial. But that was then. Here we read of a transformed man ministering to Paul under house arrest, ministering to Peter later as he was in prison to Rome. And all that time that he spent with Peter bringing, uh, being discipled by him as he soaked in the stories of the life of Christ, he would eventually produce the Gospel of Mark, which served then as the basis of the Gospel of Luke, which then also served as the, as the basis of the Gospel of Matthew. We don't have time to explore Timothy's life, who also, Timothy also became the uh, bishop in Ephesus right before Onesimus. And two letters in the New Testament were written to Timothy by Paul. And, and, and Timothy was right there with them. And don't forget Luke, who was also there with Paul in this little apartment. Uh, this doctor turned author who ended up 
providing us with the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He wrote more of the New Testament than even Paul himself. What do they all have in common, these men? Lives transformed by the resurrected Christ. As valuable as it may be to consider forensic and eyewitness proof of Christ's resurrection, if the resurrection of Christ had no transformative impact, if resurrected Christ, if if he made no difference in anyone's life, those who saw it happen, those who placed their trust in him, would it really matter if he was resurrected from the dead or not? But here in this little apartment in Rome in 61 AD, Paul writes to Philemon, and in it we find a murderous religious zealot, a runaway slave, another man who abandoned his co-laborers during an intense trial, and a distinguished medical doctor among others who, who were there who surely equally had compelling testimony to the fact that Christ was raised from the dead by the stories of their own lives, that they were transformed lives and their lives were living proof that it was so. So I wonder whose life out of the company of men your life most closely mirrored or maybe today even mirrors. Maybe you're like Paul and you just don't believe it. You cannot fathom a man being resurrected from the dead and, and so you just mock those who put their faith in Jesus. Or maybe you're like Onesimus, running and running from something uh, that you did wrong in the past and you're just not really sure how to deal with it now. Or maybe you're like, well, like Mark, you let others down, you failed others, and those failures have defined who you are today. Or maybe you're like an educated professional like Luke, who at this point in your life, well, you, you don't even believe that you need a savior. Well, wherever you are in life, I can tell you this. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And that resurrection is proof, positive, that if you place your trust in him, he will transform you, he will renew you, he will restore you, he will give you a life that far exceeds whatever you are experiencing in life right now without him, just as he had done for those gathered together in that little apartment in Rome in 61 AD. May you turn to him for such a life. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the power that extends to us through this resurrection that transforms life, that renews us, reconciles us, restores us, 
turns us into a family and into new creations. And Lord, I pray for those who are listening right now and watching in their homes. I pray that as you worked in that small flat, that small apartment, you would work in the homes who are listening right now by your spirit. Confirm in their lives that indeed you have been resurrected and that you desire a relationship with them. That Their lives might be lived anew for you in this wonderful power this wonderful glory of resurrected life. Lord, I pray these things in the power of your strong name. Amen.